This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to an expert in the field of ion channels. What exactly are ion channels, and why are they important? To answer the second question first, nature has a pretty amusing example to show us what can happen when your ion channels aren't working properly. They're called fainting goats, and if you haven't seen what they look like, I'll give you a second. I suggest you look them up on YouTube. Uh, For everyone else I can't, I'll tell you what you're missing. If you sneak up behind one of these goats and startle them, their muscles almost immediately lock up and they fall right over. It's kind of sad, but it's also really hilarious. It's still not exactly clear why a startling event triggers this, but we do know that a mutated chloride ion channel is responsible for the stiffening of the muscles, which is also known as myotonia. So this example shows us one of the important roles of ion channels. They help coordinate the transmission of signals in muscles and in the nervous system. How do they do this? Well, let's talk about what ion channels are. They are proteins that sit in the membranes of cells, and they allow the passage of ions through them, such as sodium, potassium, or calcium. By allowing ions, which are charged particles, to flow through them, the electrical properties of the cell change, and this is how a variety of biological processes work. Ion channels open and close depending on different kinds of stimuli, which is known as gating. So channels can be gated by things like changes in voltage, by mechanical forces, or by the binding of molecules. So one question that has puzzled scientists for a really long time, how exactly do these ion channels open and close? If we could figure this out in more detail, it would help us treat a number of diseases caused by malfunctioning ion channels, like epilepsy, cardiac arrhythmias, and many more. There is one significant problem, though, with answering this question. The ion channels are really tiny. How can we possibly figure out how these proteins are moving when we can barely see them? Well, we're going to be talking today with a researcher who is trying to figure this out and has been using some pretty clever tricks to do so. His name is Dr. Chris Ahern, and he is a scientist at the University of Iowa. Dr. Ahern uses some cool biochemical techniques to very subtly change the structure of the ion channel to better understand how these channels open and close. We'll get to that later, but first, I wanted to see what got Dr. Ahern interested in ion channels. I saw you went to like uh, University of Wisconsin, is that correct? Madison? Yes, that's correct. How was that experience like, and did you know at that point that you wanted to do science as a career? No. Okay. No. I mean, no, it, it happened organically. I mean, I, I, I got my degree in chemistry, and, and it was really one of these things that I just really liked doing chemistry, but I had no idea what I wanted to do with it. Like, I had really bad advice from my, my advisor, and he said, follow your dreams, you know, like this guy who's a fairly famous organic chemist in the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's like, just follow your dreams. I'm like, no, I need practical advice. Like, what should, what should I do? I, I really liked organic synthesis. I was pretty good at it. I could make molecules. And I enjoyed it. More importantly, it's not something I saw as work or something that was difficult. I just really enjoyed it. Cool. You know, so I finished up, and I really wasn't sure what it is. 
you know, where, where I wanted to go with that. So I kind of like went off the grid a little bit. I was a, I, I was a, a really competitive cyclist before college. So I'd spent some time racing. I spent a little bit of time at the Olympic Training Center. Like I was, I was racing kind of, you know, pretty competitively at that wow. level. And then I went into college, drank beer, mac and cheese, you know, and gained the freshman 40. <laughs> and, and then, uh, it was for me because, you know, as a cyclist, I was under coming out of high school. So yeah, I didn't really pay for that. And then, so then I got back out of, I got out of, you know, my degree and I was like, you know, I think I want to do that again. And so I moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico with a friend. And we got back into racing again. And so we were racing really competitively on the road and then a little bit on mountain biking for a couple of years. I mean, it was just really just kind of living hand to mouth. You know, how are we going to support this existence? This is something we really enjoyed doing. It was incredibly difficult on, on every level, financially, physically. You know, it was just a real strain. But, you know, we really enjoyed it. But very soon it was like, okay, now what? Like, what do we want to do? This was, this has been a good little adventure. And I was like, I really wanted to go back to grad school. You know, I was like, you know what? That, that's what I want to do. That, that's what I was good at was, was doing science. And that's what I really wanted to try. So I contacted a person who I had done an undergrad rotation with. And he was like, well, let's see if we can try and do it. So, you know, he first hired me back as a technician. And I worked for a year or two as a technician, which I, I really recommend is a good idea for people. Because if you go into a lab as a tech, you learn everything. Like if you go in as a grad student, you, you don't really, you, you're kind of scrounging for how things work, what, 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 you know, what things people are doing and how they're doing it. You really come about that kind of second hand. But if you're hired as a technician, you do everything. Like you're setting up all the experience, the experiments for everybody. You got your hand in every little You got part. your hand in everything. And so you learn a lot. You do a lot of learning and you do, you get paid basically to learn. And I was like, okay, this was a really exciting thing. We were doing a lot of, you know, I'd, I'd never done that much ion channel stuff before. And I was really getting into this idea of like ion channels, calcium channels and muscle. I really found it to be a really exciting field. And then after a year or two of that, I decided to go to grad school. And it was, it was pretty clear at that point that I was like, this is what I want to do. And it wasn't because I'd ever had a linear trajectory to do science. Like I never had really thought, oh, this is what I wanted to do. It was just like, this is what really brings me joy. I really like doing it. We like for the first time, I never thought about hours, working hours. Mm -hmm. I was just working, you know, and it was never something that I was considering. Oh, I'm going to go in on Sunday afternoon. It wasn't a drag. I was like, oh, I want to go set this thing up and see how it looks on Tuesday. And it wasn't that it was like, oh, my PI total asshole, he like wants me to go in on Sunday. <laughs> no, it was, it was like, it was really kind of easy for me to work a lot and to be excited about it. So it, it was actually happened pretty naturally. That's wonderful. I, I, that's, I think, what everyone would hope to get out of a career. So did you, um, do you have the science run in your family? Or are you the first, if you're, do your parents do science or academics or anything like that? Um, yeah, my father's a chemist. Uh, but he didn't go the, the academic route. He, you ended up going into industry. Okay. My mom was a nurse. Uh, I mean, they always kind of valued education, but they, they didn't really guide us at all. There, there wasn't like, you have to go to school. When I was in high school, <laughs> you better get good grades. It was, it was very kind of hands off, you know, so you really kind of had to find your own way. They were always very supportive. I mean, they were always, even when I was doing my off the grid thing, they were like, yeah, that's great. You know, they never really one way or the other. Uh, influenced me. I think they were happy when I got back into to a kind of a more, uh, you know, rigorous track and, and going into grad school. I think they were happy about that, but they were always very supportive. I mean, I have uh, an uncle who's a math professor you know, at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And so he, he kind of always had that kind of privileged existence. Like, I'm like, I always thought, you know, okay, so math is one thing. And I was like, oh man, he's always in Europe or he's always at the coffee shop. And, and then I'm like, but that's not how my scientific life is panning out. And then I was like, oh yeah, math. There's you no can do math. math lots of places. Yeah, you can do math. I'm, I'm saying this very ignorant, so I'm not a mathematics 
person. So. No, but they, they, they have the real benefit of it. It's a truly inspired kind of a thing. Like you, you don't, uh, you don't, you don't need money for a, a mouse budget or for PCR materials or for all the things that we have to find money for to do the science that we want to do. It costs money. Mm-hmm. And so it's a different kind of existence. So I, I you know, so I did have uh, some people who were doing uh, that kind of thing. I have a brother-in-law who's also at the University of Wisconsin who does cheese chemistry. Cheese chemistry. Yeah, of cheese course, chemistry. that would be at Wisconsin. Too. Yeah, Wisconsin. Yeah, that's so wonderful. fermentation and cheese chemistry. So that, that's kind of in the kind beer of chemistry. Point. I guess yeah, beer chemistry. I think they're going to start a new fermentation program there. Nice. So yeah, that, that's going to be. I think everything fermented, everything from like kimchi to, to to beer, cheese, and you know, all that. I'm the, taking that class. <laughs> I, I'm in the wrong field. No. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it wasn't really in the family. It was just kind of I found. I mean, some people were doing it, but there's a lot of other people doing different things too. So okay. I just kind of found it, and it, you know, there was it was always kind of advised that you're always told how difficult it's going to be. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's always something you're told, and it's true, and it's not the easiest thing. You you definitely have to develop a thick skin. Yeah. How was your graduate career then? So did you go into the lab that you worked in? I did go in the lab that I worked in. Yeah. So you'd already had the skill set kind of like already I had, prepared. I had the, the technical skill set technical and that I knew the skills that I needed, but I did not have the intellectual skill set at all. I okay. did like presentations. I didn't know how to, to deliver a talk in any way, shape or form. I was very sensitive about like if somebody would come in and, and be very critical about what you had done, I'd take it personally. You know, like those are the, like, that's important stuff you need to get over is, is it's almost better to have a difficult PhD, I think, because if, if somebody's very hard on you, you kind of toughen up a little bit and you don't take things. I mean, it's important to love your work, but not take it personally when somebody criticizes it. Right. And that's hard. It's the science that's there. It's everyone's like to attach their, you know, their ego to that. And I think that that's a dangerous thing to do because the science will be the science, whether or not you want it to be a way or not. (laughs) You can't really control the outcome of how things are going to go. So you quickly learn that you kind of like, okay, that's just what it is. You know, you do your best to make it as, as good and airtight story as you can, mm-hmm. but you know, you can't really change anything about it. Yeah. So yeah, the, my grad school, it was good because it was a very productive time. I had a lot of papers because I was a technician and the grad student for a period of time. Mm-hmm. So I was involved in a lot of different things. So it was very productive. But I mean, the best thing that came out of that whole experience is that I was able to then work with a really good postdoc advisor. His name was Dick Horn. I and mean, he was just amazing. Just an amazing, amazing advisor. He was like this really unique character. He also had a very kind of non-linear trajectory. Uh, he, uh, uh, you know, he was a professional musician in the seventies and then he would go back and forth from neuroscience to ion channel biophysics. And then he was a professional keyboard player. Really? And so he had this really kind of interesting perspective, very creative, you know, cause my, my advisor and as a PhD advisor was very kind of uh, rigid. And, and very kind of like straightforward and, and uh, Spike, we, his name is Dick Horn, but we call him Spike. He was like very creative. He was always about what's the what's the most creative way we can solve this problem, and you know what's the the best way to go about doing it. Not just kind of brute force, but what's the most creative way. And that's where I think I really learned a lot was being with somebody who was really creative. And you know that's the way he had made his career doing it, is being creative about finding ways to solve problems. Do you think having both perspectives? I guess you said a very creative and. Uh maybe idea driven versus a maybe technical driven. Do you think that having both of those things like was very important for your? Yeah. Career? Yeah. For me, I mean, everybody's different, right? Like it, it's like everybody has their own kind of way and, and I didn't really plan it, but that just seemed like the best. It, it did work out well for me to have kind of a, a very rough PhD uh, with, with somebody who was not very nice. And then to, to be with somebody who then I did appreciate very much their input. 
so it, it, it was a really good trajectory for me. You know, like I came out of it in a good place. I think that I was able to, you know, stand up and, and talk about a concept. But if somebody was very critical, I'd be like, yeah, good point. Like it was like it wasn't like it, it, I ever take anything personally about the data. You just try to do it as best you can. But, you know, again, that, you know, you, I, I got myself into this situation with this guy, Dick Horn. Because I had had a productive Ph.D., he only took one postdoc at a time. It was a very unique situation that I don't think there really are many of anymore. So he would have one postdoc for five years, and that was it. He would have one grad student, maybe at during that time, and one po- one uh, like uh, research tech. So you got a lot of attention. Then, it would just or... me and me and Spike mm. <laughs> throwing you know? ideas back and forth, <laughs> back and forth, <laughs> and playing music, maybe playing music, a lot of music. Did he teach you, or did, do you play music at all, or do you? Uh, did no, he teach I don't. You? No, yeah. I'm not very creative that way. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean he was always he was always very creative. You know, he was he played classical piano. He played funk piano. He played like Chick Corea kind of stuff. He had a, 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 a band called the Intersection Band that he would go play. It was like a janitor and a truck driver from Jefferson. <laughs> and they would play these gigs. And he was this really uh, a, a fun character. But he was also like one of the, the, the luminaries in the field of ion channel biophysics. Like he wrote some of the basic theory that still stands today on how we understand you know, statistics as, it, as it's applied to ion channel single molecule biophysics. So he was like an incredibly rigorous person. And, and then you only see those types of things in science, really. It seems like where you have these people who are very unique individuals where they can embody many different things where they're really excellent at them, but they, they seem a little quirky, but actually they're really good at what they do. <laughs> Let's go to some of some basic science stuff. I'm going to start off like from okay. the, the, the most basic. Can you just give us your definition? What are ion channels and like why they're important? So, you know, everything in your body... Uh, and in animals, I guess I can say, it's controlled by electricity. So movement, uh, sensory information, hot, cold, everything you touch and feel, how that information is basically parlayed into your brain is carried by electrical signaling. Pain is a, is a, is a series of electrical signals that are carried through your nerves. Also, you know, ambulatory movement, like contraction, like moving, everything that is involved with that is all coordinated by electrical signaling as well as breathing and then your heart. All those things are electrical signals, and those electrical signals come from ion channels. So ion channels, the way that they work is they control the flow of ions across any given cell. And when those ions move, they make a current, and that current turns into electricity. And so in any given cell, let's say you have a heart cell, there's maybe a million ion channels in that heart cell. And then you have millions of heart cells in your heart. And all those things are coordinated to go off during a muscle contraction when you have your heartbeat. And so the, the, the ion channels themselves actually kind of are this, they, they couple whatever the contraction or the sensory or whatever else to the signal that your body then interprets as the outside world. Uh, what about them drove you to be interested in ion channels? Why did that make you, well, why did you want to study those? I don't know, there was a lot of challenge to it, just technically studying channels is, is technically kind of uh, difficult. You know, there's a, a lot of electrophysiology, which it's a technique where you, it's kind of like a combination of, you know, playing space invaders along with <laughs> doing recordings. You have this kind of, uh, you have to, you know, bring in electrodes and, and do this actual physical maneuvering of, of electrical pipettes to record from cells, like we actually can record the electrical activity from a single cell. And that's a, a challenge on its own just to get that down. And then that in combination with the theory and all the descriptions that go along with understanding these molecules. This, those two things, along with my chemical chemistry background, really kind of gelled along with, okay, I, I was always been kind of mechanistic, like how things work. And, you know, like when you think about chemical reactions and how chemical reactions go forward, I thought about ion channels in that same kind of way. Though, oh, this is a chemical reaction. These are how things are working. 
you know, so it was, it really kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, appealed to me on that level. Could you give us a little bit of a historical perspective, some of the really maybe like landmark studies in the field that have really helped you do your research? Yeah. So when you're talking about it, it all starts back with, uh, you know, in the 1700s with Galvani, like he's the one who showed that electrical spark on a frog leg caused contraction. Mm -hmm. Like that's where, that's where it all kind of begins with the enlightenment of how we understand electrical signaling and how that was coded into contraction. But then you can fast forward through all sorts of work that was done. And the main stuff that in our field, the, the two big fathers that, over, that rule over everything are Hodgkin and Huxley. These are guys that kind of went in to, to squid axons and they recorded. And the reason they, they picked that cell is because they had easy access to these squid that the fishermen would bring in. And they have this one large axon that runs throughout their whole body. And back then in the 40s and 50s, they could actually, you know, make electrodes and record currents and conductances through those squid axons. And they could describe sodium currents and potassium currents and all those things that they described then apply to humans, apply to us. We have all those same conductances, all those same things. And they worked out a lot of the kinetics on that. And that basically formed, you know, a lot of the basis for the understanding of ion channels in, in a macroscopic way, in a tissue-dependent way. And I think they won the Nobel Prize soon after that. And then when you think about the understanding of how things work, the next big discoveries were uh, like Pancho Bezania and uh, Clay Armstrong and Martin Schneider doing gating currents of, of ion channels. And these were this, this kind of mythical thing. So Hodgkin and Huxley had said, okay, if you have a voltage-gated ion channel, you should have a voltage sensor. There should be some thing that you should be able to measure that the channel uses to open and close the channel. It can sense the membrane potential. It's gated by voltage. It's turned on and off by voltage. And it was this kind of this mythical thing, this voltage sensing unit. And these guys got together and they, they built these amazing rigs that were sensitive enough to pick up these voltage sensors. Like they could actually pick up the movement. That was in the early 70s. You know, and these guys were true luminaries because like back then, you know, now we have it easy. We just buy rigs. You call them up and you and you get a rig and you, you put it together and yeah you think you're all proud because you you piece this thing together because you have it all but it comes basically turnkey. These guys build their own rigs like you know they take apart whatever they could take apart and just put it together. Car batteries, yeah, car battery, whatever you could come in. But then yeah, you can do all that stuff. But then at the same time, because it's incredibly sensitive, these measurements, you know, so like a big signal is a nanoamp, like ten to the minus nine amps, like you know, like a billionth of an amp is a big signal. So like you can do all this stuff, but it has to also be done very well. So there's no electrical noise. Mm -hmm. Like I heard that there was a story, a mythical story about Pancho Bezania that when he was a kid growing up in South America, he wanted to watch the world cup. So he built a TV. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Is it? Yeah. I don't mind. That's awesome. <laughs> he was like 13 years old or 12 years old. He like built a TV that he could, he could then. <laughs> you, it's like if a kid can build the oh, Xbox, it's like you get to keep the Xbox. You can, yeah, you can build it. And he was just like a kid. I remember him telling me that story. I'll ask him to double check the details of it. But it was oh, like man. something like the World Cup. It might even not have been the World Cup. It may have just been like Team Chile or something. But, yeah. <laughs> but that, you know, these are guys that this is their ability. And it, it eclipses, uh, I think, a lot of people in our generation because we've had it so easy. Yeah. I mean, we're doing other stuff, but. You know, the, the next step was single channels. So in the 70s, a lot of guys contributed to under, you know, getting recordings of a single channel. You know, so now people are all excited about single molecule stuff. But this was 1975, 1976, and these guys were able to get the, the noise of their rigs so low that they could bring an electrode down and record a single channel opening and closing. Just one ion channel. One ion channel. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, that they could get the noise down that much. And that's like a picoamp. 
of, of, of current flowing through there. It's, you know, maybe a million ions per second, which is just nothing. And they could actually see these single channels opening and closing. It was like for the first time, all these predictions of theory of 50 years before, there it is. This thing is real. And then they started recording ion channels everywhere. They could see that they're in the brain and, you know, blood cells all over the place. These, these things are fundamental machines of life that contribute to everything that we know. And then, then the next big thing was when we got uh, sequences, the cloning revolution. And like all of a sudden we started getting, you know, what, what were the genes that encoded these channels? You know, there's a Japanese group that came through and they said, okay, here's a sodium channel gene. We cloned it using toxins that were going after the channel. They were able to pull it out, clone it, all these things. You know, that, that was just an amazing breakthrough to all of a sudden get the genes. And it's the same with every field. When all of a sudden people started cloning the genes, then all of a sudden it was like it raised all the boats of everybody because then everybody could take these clones and express them and, and use them everywhere. And it's not just ion channels. It's all over the place, you know. And then I think it's then culminated with Rod McKinnon and his his like ground, groundbreaking work with crystallography. Like a lot of stuff that he's done with uh, crystal structures has just kind of revolutionized our understanding of ion channels that, you know, that for a long time people didn't think you could get crystal structures of ion channels. Because they're they're membrane embedded and it's just they're not going to be stable enough to get a crystal structure. Yeah, and these crystal channels, right? They help give us the first real like picture of what. Yeah, yeah. The... Then you can see this thing, and then you can see and directly you can be inspired for a mechanism of how it works. I mean, there's now like a, a kind of some you know rolling controversy about what structure does this crystal represent? What what's the functional impact of it? Yeah, those are all kind of interesting questions. But just getting these structures provide so much insight it's just revolutionized everything and now there's a lot of crystallographers but you know in every instance it was like one intrepid person that they're like oh you'll never get that and then <laughs> they, they go out and they try and get it <laughs> and then sometimes they get it you know okay so what's your question right now that you people are telling you you can't do but mm. <laughs> i guess that's a lead into the question of <laughs> i would like to just you to talk about your research and what how you're pushing the field and what you focus on yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's hard for us to think about, like, how we're pushing the field because we're, you know, science is so collaborative. You know, maybe it, it, it used to be a lot more like islands, and but I think more and more and more we're benefiting from a much more collaborative culture. Like, people in my peer group are very well connected. I, I have collaborations all over the world, and we're always in contact with one another about how things are working. So it's like we're all kind of pushing on our own little fronts, uh, but, you know, everybody's making their, their progress as, as it goes. Like, the one thing that I, I'm excited about that, that I'd like to see to get working because I think it'll be helpful for a lot of people is this synthetic biology and, and how we can kind of expand the genetic code in a lot of different ways that we can start to go in a number of different directions. We can, you know, there's residues, catalytic residues of the, of the net 20 naturally occurring amino acids that have been identified. You know, one of the things that site-directed mutagenesis has done, 20 years of people mutagenizing PhD students like yourself, go mutagenize those 30 amino acids and tell me what happens. <laughs> <laughs> now, be right back. Be right back. And now there's a nice data set out there that says, okay, nothing happens if you mess with these, but this one can't touch that one. And then, okay, so that's a hot spot. That's good. You know, so now we can follow up on that and we can derivatize that with unnatural amino acids and see, okay, why is that site important? What, what's going on with that? And then directly from that comes a mechanism. So, you know, like we can start to extract, you know, different mechanisms on why these things are important. And then that along with structural data, and then our computational friends, people who just work in the in silico world and they take crystal structures and they animate them, uh, then, you know, that, that kind of functional data tethers together all those other powerful approaches. You know, so I, I really think that that's, that's going to be something in the future. Is one thing that I want to kind of be a part of is how do we get these techniques so they're more generally applicable and that so other people can use them. 
you know, because we, we were lucky enough to have some really good technical people in, in the lab that helped us get these things working, which was great. You know, it was good for them. It was good for me. There's no doubt about it. But it was, it's been really hard for a lot of other people. And so what I would like to see is, is just to see it more being used across the board by a lot of people. What kind of questions are you using or what kind of questions are you asking right now in the lab that haven't been answered yet? Well, I mean, a lot of them, is, it's, it's really kind of simple stuff. It, it's surprising that here we are in you know, 2013. You know, we still don't know. So we know that the you know, channels open and close. And let's say if it's a sodium channel, if it doesn't close very well, you're going to have arrhythmia, death, epilepsy, pain, all sorts of things happen. You know, that, that even some sleep disorders have recently been tied with channels not closing effectively. We have no idea the conformational changes that underlie these, this, these simple gating motions, like what's moving, where it's moving, when it's moving. There's so much out there to do. Like you always think, Oh, what else can we work on? And then you sit down and think about it and you're like, everything. <laughs> and the basics too, right? I mean, yeah. No, it's all in the open. basics. Yeah. It's, a lot of it is in the basics. I mean, there is, there is some pressure uh, from some places to just move into more translational areas. But the way that I interpret that, that urging is that, you know, if you're working on a basic mechanism that's applicable to a physiological output, that is translational, you know, by definition. And you might not be coming up with a, a cure for a disease today, but you're providing a foundation for understanding for how a drug might work that could be used to manage a disease. So, yeah, so just getting back to the question of what I want to work on, like, what are all these confirmations? You know, my, my big thing are sodium channels. These, these are the channels that drive excitability in the cardiovascular nervous systems. They, they open up very quickly, sodium comes in, depolarization, active potential, boom. If they don't turn off enough, you have all these problems. And it's really just not known the motions that, that turn them off, like what, what's moving, what's not moving, because with the ion channel world, uh, we only see the open state functionally. When the channel opens, you see all this current going through, okay, great, and then it closes, and then any other confirmation that occurs, we call that a silent transition because there's no electrical signal associated with it, so you can't get at any of that information. So what we'd like to do is be part of like developing new probes and new molecules that will then inform on those confirmational changes. That's what I would like to see in the next five or ten years. Can yeah. you talk about the procedure that you use? You said before, site-directed mutagenesis. Yeah. What is that, and how are you using this in your lab? Oh, so citric immunogenesis is kind of a, what we're building on. And so citric immunogenesis was uh, an amazing discovery that the, the guys who invented PCR, polymerase chain reaction, you know, so they, they found that if you had a small piece of DNA and this enzyme called a polymerase, you could amplify a large piece of DNA using that small piece of DNA as a primer. So that primer would go and hybridize to the long piece of DNA, and then the polymerase would stretch out and build on that short piece of DNA, matching the long piece of DNA. So you could basically sequence a DNA section and get the real sequence of that to amplify it. And that was polymerase chain reaction. And then the next kind of, you know, a breakthrough was that if you introduced a mismatch, you could then introduce a mutation in that protein that you were amplifying. And so that became site-directed mutagenesis. And so that's what I was saying, you know, nice grad students will go through and they'll mutagenize 30 sites in a, in a protein of interest. Oh, we think that this receptor is important. Let's mutagenize all these sites, put alanines or other mutations there systematically. That's site-directed mutagenesis. And that will tell you what's, where, what are important sites, if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, it's really going through. I mean, that seems like a lot of work. Just, does this change it? No. Nope. Does this change it? No. Nope. Yeah. And then suddenly... Just, you know, yeah, there's no reward until you get the result and then it's even more powerful because you did all the groundwork. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of big papers in our field where people kind of went bonkers and they <laughs> did like, you know, a hundred sites 
or 150 sites. Yeah. And you have all these nothing, 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 boom, nothing, 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 you know? That's informative, right? And, and it is informative. And, and it, it maybe isn't the most hypothesis-driven approach, but at the end of the day, those are a lot of the go-to papers. When you like you 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 find out in the literature, oh this hey this new mutation they found out causes epilepsy, and you go back and you look at those original papers which were not hypothesis driven, but they kind of gave you a map, a functionality map of the protein of the ion channel. And you're like oh yeah they found that before. When you mutagenize that site, you get this effect in the equilibrium constant for closing. Oh okay that makes sense because now the mutant does this. Okay then all of a sudden immediately you have a corollary of you know why that mutant would have an effect. So. In a way, we like to think of maybe we could, you know, go about making probes that would be the same kind of thing, mapping out all the, the motions of the channel, not necessarily in a hypothesis-driven way, but what's moving and where it's moving and why. But that was not the question. No, this is part of it. No, I actually, I was asking about, you said you go, you're going further than that, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so our trick yeah. that we've, that our trick that we've just learned from other people in the field is to put synthetic amino acids in. So in site-directed mutagenesis, you're really kind of tethered to the existing palette of 20 amino acids. In some creatures, there's more than that, but generally we like to say 20. Uh, and so you, if you're going to swap one out, you're stuck swapping it out for one of the other ones. And invariably, when you do that, you change more than one thing chemically. If you look at a, a if you look chemically at the structures of 20 amino acids, there's no way to go from one to the other thing without changing more than one thing at once. And so you're always doing multiple things at once. And so what we like to do is do some like subtle derivatives, like a synthetic amino acid that'd be changing just one chemical property of something. And that's been very informative for us for the last couple of years is saying, okay, actually, if we really just pin down different chemical properties of one side chain, we can do that. And that's this synthetic amino acid approach where we can kind of hijack a tRNA, put a, an, an unnatural amino acid on it, and then send that tRNA into a cell and direct that amino acid towards a transcript that we want it to go to. Uh, and I think that has a lot of power because you can do site-directed stuff as understanding structure-function relationships. But then, then then getting back to this idea of like if we could come up with some probes, like such as a floor 4, a spin label, uh, some something that's going to uh, give us a readout, some sort of uh, an output of distance, of motion, of environment. Those are the type of things that are going to start to inform on what is the environment and what's the, the life cycle of that of that protein. You know, that, that, those are the type of tools that I envision in the next five or ten years will actually start to be generally applicable to a lot of people. They'll be the things you can order in, like, life technologies. <laughs> <laughs> what other advances, maybe outside of your field, would help you guys move that forward? Well, I mean, in our field, it's a great example of, of funding good work regardless of the application. And it's not our work. I'm talking about the stuff that we've built on. So we've, we have benefited so much from biologists studying prokaryotic translational machinery. All the way that prokaryotes, they go about how they charge tRNAs, orthogonality, how they go about this, how RNA works and ribosomes work. All of that was just directed towards, let's understand life. You know, there was a period of time where they would fund science and like, oh, let's just understand how this works. Because someday it may be important and actually turns out it's incredibly important to us right now because we can then take the best of those systems, steal them, and express them in, in our systems. And only because all that other work was done and it was done so well, can we benefit from that now? A lot of it is yeast genetics. You know, a, a lot of, a lot of kind of seemingly far flung fields inform and, and really help us a lot that we could never do this stuff. We would never be able to do any of this stuff without all those, that, that work that was done by other groups on seemingly unimportant organisms. If it's done well, it will help someone. 
you know, like, like your your story may may not seem like it's going in a very good direction, but if the if you do a good job of characterizing with an accurate description of what you're working on, if it's done well and it's and it's as tight as you can make it and it's a good story, you're like, well, I don't really know how this helps me. You'd be surprised how many times you go back and you find a paper from the 80s or something or even further back. And they obviously didn't know the ramifications of maybe what they were working on, but because it was really well done, you get so much out of that. You know, like it, and it's not always your field that you learn from, you learn from other fields. But yeah, it does get back to, to funding basic because that's where targets come from. You know, like when you're talking about drugs, you're talking about like, you know, therapeutics and, and things that are translational and are important. All that information comes from basic research. I mean, the reason that we know so much about all these targets for cancer biology or whatever arrhythmias is because somebody took the time to go out and map everything. And not because it was at that point they didn't know it was translational because maybe they didn't even know how cancer worked back then or they didn't know how arrhythmias worked back then, but they mapped out how these systems worked because it was a cool thing and it was a good idea to understand how life works. And then it turns out later like, oh, wait, that's how epilepsy works. So it's a good thing we made those maps before as opposed to finding out later. But it seems like that kind of ideology is is going by the wayside. It's more let's run with the targets we have and hope that we have everything we need in the future, which I think is undercutting maybe uh, a lot of what we could be doing. Your technique that you just that you mentioned is, seems extremely powerful for the reason of, again, you can really get fine-tuned at the variable that you're interested in and not have, be restricted by, like you said, changing many different aspects by changing amino acids. Yeah, well, those, those stories came out of the, the work that I was doing with Stefan Pless, who was a, a, a postdoc in my lab. He was a fearless German who, who decided that, he, you know, he, despite better offers from, from better labs, he decided to come into my lab to, to work with us uh, early on to get off the ground. And so a lot of the credit is, is owed to him. And, and when we started doing this unnatural amino acid stuff, the first thing that we were starting to think when we were getting excited is, okay, let's, let's go and, and do the, all these freaky things that we can do with unnatural. Let's make the, the biggest, craziest floor for what can we make? Uh, and then after a while, we calmed down and we're like, you know what, the most powerful Mutations are the most subtle, the the things where you actually do a very, very small amount of chemistry on a side chain and break it down to exactly what you said. Let's break it down to one chemical trait to see how we can understand how that works. So in, in one of the things I talked about today, we were talking about a, a hydrogen bond network in a, in a potassium channel. And what that is, is it's actually what it sounds like. You have two amino acid side chains and they share a hydrogen between the two of them. And by sharing a hydrogen they're bonded together. These two residues are, are held in close proximity by sharing that hydrogen. And so one of the ways that we were actually able to study those networks is by working with uh, Jason Galpine, the chemist in the lab. We said, hey, we have this problem. You know, this is what we'll do. We'll talk, go and go up to Jason and say, hey, here's an interaction we want to try and investigate. What do you think, you know, what, what types of new unnatural amino acids could we use to subtly investigate this interaction and he kind of thought about it for a while and he comes back he goes oh you know what i can actually just cleave that hydrogen bond by moving the nitrogen to another part of that amino acid a couple weeks later comes back he makes it gives it to stefan stefan puts it in some channels and all of a sudden you start to see that by just removing that single hydrogen bond the whole channel will collapse you know we're talking about hundreds if not thousands of hydrogen bonds holding this gigantic molecule together. And if you just go after the right one, the single hydrogen, you can cause this whole thing to collapse. And and that's like, it's neat, but it's also important because it, it tells you how this process called slow inactivation works. Because in the body, potassium channels, 
they do inactivate. They, they turn off by breaking this hydrogen bond network. But it wasn't really known which hydrogen bonds broke first. It wasn't really known if one was enough to break the whole process. And when they inactivate, potassium stops flowing. And that can be important for ischemia and other electrical uh, diseases. So it like, it's gave like an atomic basis for a physiological kind of process at the end point. You, uh, now have a lab at, I think you worked at University of British Columbia, yep. is that correct? Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah. Can you, how was that? And then I know now you're at University of Iowa, yeah. so can you talk about both places and... Yeah, so, I mean, it, when you first start out on the on the job hunt, you know, you're, you're a postdoc. You've, you've maybe had some success, some failures, but it, hopefully a little bit more of one than the other. And then uh, yeah, that puts you in a, in a position where you actually can interview and you can get a job and you go around and do as many interviews as you can. And, you, and you're not really choosy about where you're going to get your start. Like, you just want to try and do science. You have some ideas in your head about what's going to work, and you don't really know yet. And so probably one of the, the better offers I had to start out with was in, at, in Canada, in British Columbia. And it was a good start for us, for sure. Probably one of the reasons we had recruited such a good team was because of where we were located. Uh, but, but ultimately, it, it probably wasn't the, the best place for myself or my family. Uh, it, was, it was a very expensive place to live, and that, that really influenced like, how well I could do my science. You know, you usually don't always think about that, but if you're living in, a, in an environment that's very kind of hard to live in uh, outside of science, like because science is very stressful, full of rejection, uh, long hours, uh, it also your, your your home situation is not great because you're not living in a place that's easy to live because it's incredibly expensive. It starts to and, you, and if and if the university on top of it is not very supportive of of what you're doing, then all those things kind of come together of being okay. This is maybe not the best environment for creativity. Because you want to still be able to be like, you know, relaxed enough to think of good ideas. You know, that's the whole point is you're always thinking of problem solving. What's the way to do that? If you're always distracted by extraneous things, then it's not, it's not necessarily the best environment. And so I, I, was, I wasn't really looking for a job, which is the interesting thing. And I, I went to Iowa to give a seminar. And uh, I started talking to them about, well, you know, we, we might have an opportunity here seeing the stuff you're doing. And, and I had known the, the Department of Molecular Physiology and Biophysics. It's, it's a very well-known department for the area of ion channel research that I do. They have a, a strong track record of training people. And I was very excited by that option to go there because I could see that that could be a, a place where we could really develop what we're doing to, like, you know, actually see stuff come to life. Whereas uh, in Canada, I wasn't really sure if we were going to be able to get things off the ground. I wasn't really, I couldn't really see how that was going to work there. But it, to, to have a supportive environment was then really uh, made it worthwhile. I mean, I hope I never have to move again. <laughs> you know, moving a lab is incredibly hard. It, it's stressful for everybody, you know, because you, you know, you're the, you're the person who's running the lab and, it, and it's hard to make that decision. It, it's not something that I would want to do again because people have decided to come work with you and they've decided to come work with you for a lot of reasons because it was good for their spouse to be in that city and not some other city. Uh, and also because they wanted to work with you and do the science that you were doing. So it's, it's a very disruptive process that I, I hope would never have to happen again. So we're, we're really happy there. And so it's, it's, a, it's a good place for us now. Do you get to bike a lot in Iowa now? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean that that's also a very good quality of life issue there is because uh there's fantastic gravel roads yeah. that that just have no traffic on them whatsoever. Nice. And so we can just spend hours out there on the gravel. <laughs> 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 and there's this no traffic. It's great and you can get away for like 2 hours, like something I could never do in Vancouver because Vancouver is like completely surrounded by overgrowth of condos for miles and miles and miles. And you just could never get out for a, a ride and and there you can get out and in 5 minutes you're in the rolling in the rolling countryside, so it's great. It's like here in Austin. You know, I had a couple of great rides here, 
And you guys have a, you guys have a maid here too. Yeah. Makes up for those 110 degree summer days. Yeah. And the <laughs> rain that just rained out ACL. So that was very that was unexpected. Disappointing, yeah. but you know, I'm happy for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> and we need the rain. <laughs> you need the rain more than I need ACL. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess like the last question I want to ask is mm-hmm. you, you actually talked a little bit about what you would like to see in like the next five or 10 years. Uh, are there any specific projects that you have really like on the burner right now that you would like to see done soon, like the next year scope for the future? Oh, for the, for the future. I mean, what I, I mean, one of the things I did my PhD on was this uh, process called EC coupling in muscle. It's called excitation contraction coupling in muscle. And it's basically the process by which an electrical signal on the surface of your muscle cell turns into a contraction. And there's this, the huge black box in there about how an electrical signal goes across the surface of a muscle cell, and then milliseconds later you have a contraction. And there's calcium release that's involved, but there's a coupling process This is not understood at all. And so one of the things that I'm really excited about that we're doing in Iowa is that we've started to expand the genetic code in muscle. So we know that we're able to manipulate the genetic code in muscle tissue and probably eventually in cardiac muscle tissue and eventually in neurons. And these are the, the kind of in vivo applications of this chemistry that started out, started out doing prokaryotic biology. This is now paying off with our ability to then study really important mechanisms like EC coupling in muscle to understand how these things work. And that's kind of my 10 year goal <laughs> is, awesome. is to understand how that process works, sodium channel inactivation. And if those two things are working, I'll be happy. Yeah. And that, I guess that underlies many kinds of muscle, uh, diseases or problems with yeah. contraction, like heart failure. And yeah. Like heart that. failure, muscle weakness, all sorts of applications and mysterious processes that are going on that we really, we, you know, we, there's been so much good work there. Efforts have been made, you know, investments have been made and there's a lot of identified ideas, but to flesh them out is, is going to be tough. But some of these techniques that we're, that we're coming up with, well, hopefully with we can team up with the right people, we can make some good, interesting things happen. I hope that I hope that that's for you, Chris. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.